Romans chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 1 through 7 and we'll do so for the next three weeks. We're going to focus on a handful of words this morning as it relates to Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. I'll be focusing on that first part of this reading, verse 1, but I'll read verses 1 through 7 because I think the context is very important as it also serves as his greeting uh, to the churches in Rome. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated the gospel of God which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As far as the reading of God's holy word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, even now, as we have read your glorious, living, and active word, that we might not only be hearers of it, but doers of it, that it would break forth into our hearts and bring about righteousness, that we might not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but transformed, and that you would, by your word, as it is preached, do all that you have promised that you will do as it is preached, that the nations might be brought in for your glory. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, I have been eager to begin this series, and as I have tried to make decisions about how to begin and where to begin, well, obviously with the book of Romans, but in particular, do I do some introductory sermons? How do I do all of this? It's a little bit like packing for one of those uh, long trips to, say, a different country where you think you know what you need to take, but it takes days. You lay everything out, and you go, by the end of packing it all in the bag, I'm not sure if I took the right stuff. Uh, You get in the plane, and you're having this crisis. I don't know if I brought enough pairs of pants. I'm not sure what will happen. I need to pack for right, cold and rainy, dry and cold, hot and rainy and hot and dry. You know how that goes. Uh, And so I have um, all these notes And as I'm sitting in there getting ready, I write an entirely new introduction by hand. Now, one time in the past, I endeavored to write a sermon by hand uh, because I find, I don't know if you find this, when you're at a computer, it is easy to get distracted by all the other things you have open, whether it's email or sports scores or uh, messages you might find, those types of things. Uh, And so I wrote a sermon by hand. The problem was, when I got into the pulpit to preach it, I couldn't read my own handwriting, uh, and it was a bit of a mess. So uh, I'm going to try to uh, communicate to you, having written this introduction, I'll send out some stuff this week uh, to sort of get you into the flow of, of what I'm thinking and what Paul is endeavoring to do, 
Next week, we'll look at an overview of the book as we continue to move through verses 1 through 7. Uh, But here is what I want to say at the beginning. Why is this letter or book so precious to the church today? It is, in the minds of many, one of the most important books of the Bible. The problem with that is this. It's like being asked, as a parent, who your favorite child is. And that's a difficult question to answer. (laughs) I guess it depends on the day or what may have just happened in the house. But the honest answer is, I love them all for various reasons. And my love is not greater towards one than another. And so when we come to the book of Romans, we need to understand that there's not more Holy Spirit in Romans than there is in Ezekiel. Just because we don't understand at times, or don't read the book of Ezekiel, because there's 48 chapters. The reason why Romans is so precious to us, I think, is connected to the purpose for which it was written. Many of you know this, some of you may not. Paul wanted to go to Spain. He wanted to go and plant a church there, and so he writes to the church in Rome... And he is seeking their support. But he doesn't do it in that sort of crass way, right? Where you lead with the, hey, I'd like a little bit of money, please. He writes in Romans the very gospel that he desires to take to Spain. And so what Paul is doing is he is writing to the Roman church, a well-known church, known for their faith, known for their faithfulness, and he says, I want to go to Spain. Will you send me? Here is what I am taking. And so he's writing the church in Rome, and he says, here is the gospel in summary fashion. Here is what I'm taking. I am taking salvation, root and branch, where it comes from and what it leads to. The full flowering tree of God's self-revelation, the only way of salvation, why we need it, and how we lay hold of it and what it means for the world. Because it's not just salvation for you or me. It is salvation for every tribe, tongue, and nation. And because Paul believes this, he is preparing to go to Spain. We read this at the end of the book of Romans. In fact, he, he puts all that at the end. And so the reason why Romans is precious and ought to be precious is because Paul is not responding to a moment in a particular church. He is showing you what every church is fundamentally grounded upon no matter where you go. There is no gospel for China. There is no gospel for America. There is no white, black, yellow gospel. There is only what? The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. This is the seed that becomes the tree. And that is why it is important to us. Because one day we want to plant a church. And what are we going to take? This treasure that is the gospel root and branch 
salvation root and branch, knowing that wherever this gospel goes, the church grows. Boy, that sounded very funny. I didn't plan to say it that way. But wherever the gospel grows, the church is established because the Spirit has been sent out. And Christ has promised that we will be successful. Now, saying all of that, let's look at the man for a moment that wants to go to Spain. The man who was called, who was once a persecutor of the church, once a slave to sin, now a slave to Christ. And then that gospel that he wishes to take. Two points that I want to make this morning after that somewhat lengthy introduction. Number one, slave to sin and then to Christ. A slave to sin and then to Christ. And then secondly, called and freed to proclaim. Called and freed to proclaim. Let's look at the first point. A slave to sin and then to Christ. Now, in order to understand and better appreciate any book of the Bible, it is right for us to have a good doctrine of Scripture. That when the Holy Spirit inspired men to write, he did not do so neglecting their experiences, their character, their personality and style. So when you look at the book of uh, the Gospel of Luke, you can tell a doctor wrote it. He's precise, he's clear, and he wrote a lot. When you look at the Gospel of John, John was a, a feeler, a man of great emotion and affection, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And you see that in every page of the Gospel of John. In the book of Romans, it is impossible to escape the man and the book. Well, what kind of man was Paul or Saul? Now, one of the things that we need to clear up is that Saul's name was not changed to Paul when he was converted. His name is Saul or Paul. It's not Saul is the unconverted Paul. Paul is the converted Saul. Those names were interchangeable, and different people called him either name throughout the duration of his life, prior to and after coming to know Christ. But the first time that we meet Saul or Paul was upon the occasion of the stoning of Stephen. Stephen was called to be a deacon, but Stephen could preach. And aside from the sermon that Peter gives at the beginning of the book of Acts, the sermon that Stephen gives is a barn burner. Both of those sermons. And do you know what they're doing in both of those sermons? They are taking the Old Testament and they are expositing and exegeting the Old Testament to show that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. And while Stephen is doing this, giving his defense for why he calls upon the name of Christ and worships Christ to the chagrin of the Roman Empire and the Jewish Sanhedrin, he preaches. He does not apologize. He preaches, and at the end of that sermon, he does what all sermons should have. He does what is best called close application. 
And close application is where the pastor turns to those who are listening and he says, all right, you guys, now you, you who are here, not some vague audience in the sky, but you who are listening, you put Jesus to death. And what do you think this did? Oh, Stephen, you're right. Is there an aisle we can walk down? Can we come to Christ? How do we know this Christ? No, what do they do? They became incensed and they took up stones and proceeded to exercise capital punishment. They stoned him. They put him to death. And what made them very upset was that even as he was preaching and being stoned, he looks to heaven and he says, I see the Christ standing And they began to put their fingers in their ears and wail and moan. And the whole time, there's Saul holding the garments of those who took them off so they could get better velocity in their throes. And Luke writes in the book of Acts, he approved of it. He approved of it. This is the Saul that we are introduced to in Acts chapter 7. And then in Acts chapter 8, we read a little bit more of Saul, a bloodthirsty Pharisee who went from city to city pointing out the followers of Christ that they might be brought either to death or some kind of persecution. And then there's a little bit of a break. We see the bringing in of the Ethiopian eunuch and the baptism by Philip. That the gospel, despite all of these persecutions, was persistent. Why? Because it wasn't just some word about some man from Nazareth. It was the gospel of Christ Jesus sent forth by the Holy Spirit so that in Acts chapter 9... As Paul was going from one city to another, he is stopped in the road by Jesus. And Jesus, the Christ, asks him, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? Now, here's what Paul wants to see. Every good Pharisee is the transcendent Messiah revealed to the nation of Israel. Saul was a slave to sin. Later, he speaks of his blameliness, blamelessness in Philippians as dung, doo-doo. Right, kids? I want you to hear that word. This is what, I mean, it's a little proper, I guess, but stinky stuff. Not good. The stuff of dogs. Wretched, unworthy, unclean. But he was a Pharisee. And not only was Saul a Pharisee, Saul was the number one Pharisee. He was a model Pharisee. He knew the law. He was blameless according to the law, but not according to Christ. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was born of the city of Tarsus. But he was a slave to sin. And there on the road to Damascus, Christ appeared to him, blinded him, sent him. Then a prophet came 
and preached the word to him, even as Stephen did, and the scales dropped from his eyes, and we see there his conversion, his call to salvation, and also his call to apostleship. And this is how Christ says it. You have caused much suffering for me, now you will suffer much for my sake. He was a slave to sin. But by God's grace, Paul says here in Romans 1, your Bibles will say bondservant. That is not the sense of the word. A bondservant is someone who goes into servancy willingly or not out of compulsion but because they have no other option. It's the structure that we find in the Old Testament when a man has debt and cannot work it off. He becomes someone's bondservant for six years. Here, Paul says, slave. It's a different word in Greek and so a different sense. Paul has been purchased. Now, the purchasing of men by other men is a capital offense. But there is no other way in which you and I are brought to salvation, is there? Either we are slaves to sin or we are slaves to righteousness. You and I are slaves to something. Either we are in Adam and in sin and unable to free ourselves or we are slaves to Christ Jesus because we have been brought. Now, that kind of slavery is in fact freedom from sin and death. It's good. But we need to see ourselves as Paul did. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. But before he was called to be an apostle, what was he made? He was made new. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy that in me... First, Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life. He was delivered from a state of misery to a wicked, toilsome master. To what? To a state of grace and apostleship. Paul was bought, therefore, with a heavy price, Christ's precious blood. He was bought for a glorious purpose, the building of Christ's kingdom. He was chosen before the foundations of the world according to the decrees of the Father. In every measure, Paul knows his life of grace is no longer his life. Now, here is the problem with the thinking of most men. I am my own man. I am in charge. And the lie of the secular West is what? If we can kill God, we are free. But such a thing is not only not possible, but it actually doesn't lead to freedom. In fact, what has this freedom led to? Misery, death, murder, the killing of unborn children. 
The redefining of all the basic terms that are not only made in Scripture known, but also in nature. All of these things. You are never your own. All of us have a master. The question is, what kind of master do you have? And so as Paul writes to Romans, what compels him to Spain is that he belongs to his maker and redeemer. And he has been shown something that he cannot unsee. A gospel that he cannot deny. A service that he has been called into that he does not wish to abandon. And this is why he writes in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And so we can say of Paul the slave, he had been saved from sin, set free from sin for something glorious. But this glory can only be understood when you have a slave's mindset. For in Acts chapter 9, the Lord says, go. He says this to the prophet who is called to go to Paul. He is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. In the book of Acts, later Paul says, chapter 20, verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Philippians 1, verse 29, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. What this means is that a large gospel, a glorious gospel, a gospel of grace makes us the kinds of people that are willing, ready, and joyful to lose our lives for the sake of it. Paul did not do this begrudgingly. He did it willingly. He did it eagerly. Because he knew what he had been saved from. Because we all start enslaved to the same hard master. Now it is hard to know, let's say even for our children, when and where God's work of grace brings about new life. For some of our children it may be in the womb. For some of our children it may be later. For some of us it was as adults. But all of those things are not because either of the faith of parents or the goodness of our own works. Our children are saved by grace. You and I are saved by grace through faith. That apart from the saving work of God manifested in the person and work of Christ, you and I would be enslaved to the same hard master. And that you and I are by nature, all of us, creatures of wrath. And we are unable, unwilling to move up the mountain into the presence of God because we hate him. We may be afraid of him. We may worship other gods because we cannot help it, Romans 1. 
But we do know this about whomever or whatever God we worship. We hate him. Unless our hearts are transformed towards love. And by love, what I mean is that God must send the Spirit to apply the redeeming work of the Son, Jesus Christ, and make us new creations. Regeneration comes before faith. And unless we are made alive, we will never see what is true of ourselves in Christ Jesus and go, man, how sweet the name of Jesus is. The contrast is, of course, the very men who stoned Stephen and Paul himself before he was converted. Aside from the redeeming, converting work of Christ, we are all those who would stone in hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. Now that may seem strange to you because you've never been threatened in such a way. But the next time you need to be reminded... Go to San Francisco during a pride parade and start street preaching. See what happens. I dare you. I mean it. And this is sort of a somewhat new thing for us in our culture. That there are so many so aggressive to truth being said. And they would label us a little bit extreme. Guilty of needlessly aggressive rhetoric. But it is the only word that saves. And so Paul sees himself not as belonging to himself anymore. But the beauty of slavery to Christ is that Christ is no hard master. Remember the words of Christ himself. Take my yoke upon you. It's easy. It's light. How is that the case? Because the end of life, even of suffering and persecution, what awaits us? What awaited Paul? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Now enter into your eternal rest. Our culture doesn't even grant redemption, let alone rest. And how often we find ourselves beholden to those who cannot And will not forgive us for our sins. But there is one who can. And that leads me to my second point. Called and freed to proclaim. So it is said and rightly ought to be understood. That Paul sees himself as a slave to a good master. Called to be an apostle. And separated for the task of the preaching of the gospel of God. But this slavery to Christ is sweet because it is the freedom that is brought about through a gospel of liberty. And so Paul, by the design and power of God, was brought from a state of false holiness, false blamelessness, to real, true, substantial holiness. And not a new gospel, as we will see later next week, But an ancient gospel, a gospel that is old as scripture itself, a gospel that is um, laid out for us clearly in Genesis chapter 3. That there will come a son born of a woman who will be bitten, as it were, the heel will be crushed, but he will crush the head of the serpent. 
And from that time of Adam's sin, you and I are all conceived and born in iniquity. And fathers and mothers, you're not exceptional in this regard. When you came together and conceived the child, you conceived the sinner. And they share some of your traits. And sometimes it's hard to be reminded of that, right? You don't want to deal with it. We looked at that a little bit last Wednesday, faithful parenting. But you know little Timmy is a bum. He's a sinner. And sometimes he makes mistakes. And sometimes he looks you dead in the face and he lies right to you. And you go, ooh, where did that come from? You. It came from you. Even if you never exemplify that kind of behavior, it came from you. It's all there in the DNA. It's all there in the blood and in the spirit or the soul. And so it must be said that as we see the gospel of Christ rising from this newly established church, it is not a new gospel It is the old gospel, but it is the gospel of Christ now revealed in the flesh. And it confronts what? It confronts our sinfulness. It confronts our rebellion. And it says of us throughout the early part of the book of Romans, number one, is none of us can escape from it. And in chapter one, Paul makes the very clear point that all in the world are lost. Gentiles are lost. And then if the Jews thought themselves a bit prideful and holy, he then says, you are even worse because you receive the revelation of God's word. You're guilty too. Gentiles and Jews are both condemned by the same law. And it is in the word and it is in nature. And you're both guilty of violating it. And then he goes to chapter 3 and he says, all right, here it is. We're all guilty. There is none righteous, no, not one. That because of this original sin, we are all actually sinning. You're not innocent in conception, and you're not innocent by action. And so the state of the world to which Paul was called to minister, and the state of the world to which you and I are called to minister and bear witness of the light of God, is a world that hates the light by nature. They are creatures of wrath. And the only way that you and I will go out and be excited and eager and aggressive in all the right ways is if we see ourselves on mission, on this mission that we cannot help but accept. But if you see yourself as slaves by compulsion, what will you always do about the master? Oh, man, what a hard guy. I can't believe I have to do this. Children, this is what makes you and turns you from slaves in your home to those who are rightful inheritance of the riches of your household. When you stop complaining, you are true sons and daughters in your house. Think of that. When you stop complaining, and when your parents say, hey, do this, and you stop going, oh, When you move from that state to, 
Okay, what else can I do for you? You will understand the heart of a child, the heart of a disciple. And that's the heart of Paul. Right? And Paul experienced many persecutions, bit by serpents, saved from it, shipwrecks, beatings, all of these things later in the end of his life, beheaded. Which frankly, compared to the rest of the apostles, was a pretty good way to go as a Roman citizen. It was quick and effective. You don't live long after your head is separated from your body. And even as Paul was prepared to go to the gallows, the last thing that he writes to his brother, his son in the faith, Timothy, is, I may be in chains, but the word of God is not in chains. It's going to do what the word does. But as far as I'm concerned, this is who I am. Would you choose a different life? If God said to you, all right, you're free to go, what would you choose? You don't have to do what I tell you to do anymore. If you were to say, finally, then you don't have the heart of a proper servant or slave. In fact, in the Old Testament, there was a time, as it related to bondservancy, When every six years, that man or woman, whoever worked in the home of another, had the choice in the year of Jubilee, you could go free or you could stay. And often, those who had experienced the blessing of covenant fellowship, covenant headship, they would live in those homes and they said, you know what? This is my family. They would take the ear of that person Well, they wouldn't take it off, but they would place the ear of a person, as it was still attached, to the doorpost like this. A wooden doorpost. They didn't have steel doorframes. And they would drive a nail through it. They would pierce the ear. And it was an indication of this. This person belongs to this house. It wasn't unlike circumcision, which was a sign of what? This house belongs to God. This person is part of this house that belongs to God. This is how Paul felt himself to be. And the sign that was administered to Paul in Acts chapter 9 was what? It wasn't a nail through the ear of a doorpost. It was baptism. Paul belongs to the household of faith. Now, though a circumcised Jew, now a baptized Christian. And so then Paul, having seen himself as one who was indebted and belonging to God, was willing and ready to go to whomever and wherever and proclaim the word, whether they were Gentiles or Jews or even kings. And he did much of that. Paul caused a stink in the courts of Rome, if you see, if you read through the book of Acts. And what was he called to take? It was the gospel of liberty. And freedom or liberty from what? From the weight and condemnation of sin. Because had Paul gone to glory or died and met Christ apart from belonging to Christ, despite all of his pharisaical wonder and faithfulness, he would have been without hope. He would have been 
not justified, but left in his sins. And so Paul, knowing of the freedom and liberty the gospel brings, says, let's go. And this is how we ought to think of the world. All men are slaves to one of two masters. You're either a slave to the triune Lord, or you're a slave to sin and death. And as we read elsewhere, Satan is your father. The Lord of lies. And Satan is no kind of father. And he himself will one day be destroyed. And so Paul, as he gets ready to go to Spain, or is endeavoring to go to Spain, writes to the church in Rome and says, this is who I am, and this is what I want to take. And so oftentimes when we look at the book of Romans, we think of Romans as an existential gospel. It's a gospel for me. And there's something to that, right? You need to come to terms with the true gospel, and it needs to change your life. But this is a gospel that is to be taken everywhere. Because it is the only thing that sets men free. And so the places that the gospel takes us are those places where men are in darkness, and women and children are in darkness. It is a gospel that is for every tribe, tongue, and nation because Christ is not only the one who died to set you free, he died to set others free. To call men to this glorious task of knowing and living according to his salvation. And so may God bless us as we move through this book that he would give us faith to hear. Let's pray. Oh Lord, even...